A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and my Ask Annalisa column appears in The Guardian every Saturday. Each week, I'm lucky enough to speak to some amazingly insightful, top-of-their-field specialists, and this podcast gives me the opportunity to speak to them in much more detail on subjects that come up all the time. I self-fund this project, and I'd love to continue to do more, so if you'd like to support us and also listen to this podcast series free of ads do join us over on Patreon, where you can also get the podcasts before they go on general release. Go to patreon.com forward slash Annalisa Barbieri. Otherwise, you can leave a one-off donation on ACAS Supporter. You can find the link for that in the description of this episode. Or just please listen and share as much as you can. It would also mean a lot to us if you left a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. When you've had a baby, simple things like sleep and food, things we took largely for granted before, become subjects of epic proportion and much debated. Like so many things, the commercial drive behind these topics drives a lot of the confusion. As you're listening, you've probably already heard about baby-led weaning, which is, simply put, letting children discover solid food for themselves at the family table and not spoon-feeding them. I first met today's guest, Jill Rapley, in 2006, when I interviewed her for The Independent. If you're interested, I'll put a link to that piece in the episode description. Jill describes herself as the pioneer of baby-led weaning, not the inventor of it, because of course, babies invented it. But she did kick off a lot of research into this subject. Jill was a health visitor for 20 years and a breastfeeding counsellor, and also an international board-certified lactation consultant. This is the highest qualification you can hold in breastfeeding and takes years of study. She's also the author of six books. Her new book is just out. I'll put all the information about these at the end of the episode. Here we talk about what baby-led weaning is, what it isn't, why we may want to rethink spoon-feeding, what the research shows, and why, anyway, baby's first piece of cutlery, when he or she is ready to wield their own, should really be a fork and not a spoon. I should add, I did spoon and puree feed with my first child and baby led weaning with my second. I'll talk more about that at the end. Hope you enjoy this. Hi Jill and welcome to this episode. Perhaps we can start with you explaining what is baby-led weaning? Hi, Annalisa. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, I'd love to explain what baby-led weaning is. It's an approach to the introduction of solid foods that's all about letting the baby set the pace and the agenda for what happens. So the responsibility of the parent is to provide good nutritious food and to share meal times with their baby, but really to leave the rest up to the baby. Baby led weaning recognises that babies of six months old, which is currently the recommended age for beginning solid foods from six months, babies at that age have lots of abilities that they don't at four months, which was the age we were previously going for. They can sit upright, they can, they can feed themselves, and we don't need to do it for them. There's no reason why a baby of six months would need to have their food pureed for them or fed to them by spoon. They can pick it up and do it with their fingers. So it's about handing over the responsibility and the agency to the baby 
to direct things. Jill, I know that I met you after my first child was born, where I had done the whole Puree thing. And I actually found the whole Puree thing really stressful. And then, I don't know if you remember, but I co-founded a parenting website called I Want My Mum, which doesn't exist anymore. But on there, there were some amazing mothers and they told me about baby led weaning and I looked into it. And I did it with my second one, which I'm going to talk about later because it was a completely different experience. But I know that I was really scared of handing over that agency to my child and I know a lot of parents feel like that it's almost like they don't try it with their first but then they get braver and they try it with their second why in your experience are parents so frightened of baby led weaning I think it's just because it's a new concept and because over the last few generations we've been taught how carefully we have to monitor what our babies eat and how much they eat they're going to eat too little they're not going to eat enough they're going to eat too much Um, We're worried about the risk of choking, which we can talk about in more depth in a minute. It's just unfamiliar. It's not the norm. But in fact, it is the norm or has been for far, far longer than the whole puring and spoon feeding thing, which is really only about 100 years old. The key is to look at our babies. You said that for you, baby led weaning was a completely different experience. What about for the baby? That's what my PhD research looked at really, is what a different experience it is for the baby and how much more enjoyable and fulfilling it is for them to feed themselves. Well, it's interesting you say that because I can't remember why. I think maybe I was mucking about with someone and they were feeding me. I wasn't ill or anything, thank goodness. I found it really horrible being fed. I found it really intrusive and it really made me realise actually what it must be like for a baby. And that was actually possibly the most useful exercise, which is, you know, being fed, being told what to eat, being told how much to eat, having someone shovel food into your mouth with a spoon. That really opened my eyes. So I completely agree. And I think a lot of it has also been driven by food manufacturers because they would say originally it was four months from four months. And so people did that. They fed their babies that. And the way I did it was with my second child, she just joined us at the table and I provided her with some food and she could take it or leave it because milk is regarded as the main nutrition, isn't it, for the first year of a baby's life. So the food is for sort of taste and texture. Is that still the case? Yes, it's not quite true to say that food before one is just for fun, which is a slogan that's often repeated. But breast milk or infant formula should be the mainstay of the child's nutrition for the first year, exclusively for the first six months. And then after that, as you say, with other things added gradually for texture and taste and to expand their repertoire. And I think you've hit on an important point as well there, because when babies start solid foods, it's not about hunger. We've been taught to look for signs of hunger in order to introduce these other foods, but actually it's not hunger that's driving the baby. It's curiosity and wanting to explore the things around them. I think we really need to understand what it's like for the baby and where they're coming from and what's motivating them. And it's not the food as food. Not only is milk still the mainstay of their nutrition, but it's what they regard as food. Mm. If they're hungry, they want a milk feed. They don't want a spoonful of something shoved in their mouth. Also, I remember you saying to me that the sort of stage two foods that we can buy, they sort of got lumps in them. And you said that in your experience as a health visitor, when you saw parents, they said that often the children rejected it. That indeed was our experience. So the purees may go okay, but the second stage food, and that's because I think we talked about the example of soup. Soup you sort of half suck in and solids you chew. And you said that if it's a mixture of both, babies don't know what to do. So as a protection, they actually don't eat any of it. And that really resonated with me and the parents that I know because On the website, a lot of parents were saying, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. The stage two food is being rejected. With my second daughter, I never stopped her eating. I never stopped her grabbing food, which was the big difference. I was always with her at mealtimes. And her first food was steak, which caused my mum to almost have a heart attack. She just gummed it. She didn't eat it, really. But it was quite messy. But... I had a lot more experience and I was very confident and actually it was really joyful watching her discover food and choose what she wanted. It was quite instinctive. And I think, I don't know if it was you or Gay Palmer who told me that actually what babies can start to lack at that age is zinc and iron, both of which are found in meat. It was really interesting that that was her first food out of, you know, a sort of smorgasbord that I presented her with. 
Yes, I, I hear that quite a lot, actually, that meat is the first food babies really seem to go for. And yes, indeed, iron and zinc are likely to be the first things that they're beginning to need. So the whole idea of kind of shoveling calories into them and giving them energy is, is mistaken. All of that they can get from milk. The only things they might be beginning to lack are those micronutrients. And so meat is a great first food. And one of the problems we have at the moment that's beginning to be addressed is that when we started solid foods at, say, four months, it was usual to start with fruit and vegetables and then introduce meat from around six months. But in some people's minds, that's been translated into that you have to have a couple of months of fruit and veg before you mm. start meat. So now we have babies starting at six months who are not getting introduced to meat until later. And that's a real pity because, as, as your baby has shown, they're perfectly capable of managing it. And if all they do is gum and suck it, then actually they're getting the juices, which is where most of the iron is. So it's an ideal one. There are many ways that we can prepare meat to make it possible for babies to manage it. And so we shouldn't be afraid of starting with meat as perhaps the very first food. In terms of what to look for, um, because if a baby first becomes sort of curious, and again, my own experience was that she would look at the food, pick it up, play it, and it would be a progression. She might smell it and eventually she might gum it and you know, eventually that would chew. Can you talk us through the process of how to know if your child, I mean, again, what I did was never stopped her grabbing food. So she sat at the table with us. But if someone is nervous, what might they look for? I mean, being able to sit up unaided is one of the signs that a baby may be ready for solids. But can you just talk us through what to look for? Yes, I can. But before I do that, I think what I want to say is that we need to think of this as another part of a baby's development. I've never been asked, what are the signs that my baby's getting ready to walk? When should I start him walking? When should I start him crawling? What signs do I need to look for? We give babies the opportunities to do those things just by putting them on the floor to play. What we don't do is the same thing with food. We don't just put them in front of the food and allow them to show us when they're ready. If you have your baby on your lap while you're eating as a newborn, he has the opportunity to reach out and grab food. He won't do it because he's not developmentally ready yet. By the time he's six months, he try stopping him. He's going to want to reach and grab everything. So yes, if we're going to give babies or offer babies food to pick up and eat, it is important that we, we make sure they're in a safe situation. So they shouldn't be leaning back. They need to be sitting upright. And for that, they need to be able to sit upright. But it's not that we need to look for signs of readiness in order to start, because introducing babies to food comes way before that. Just having them at the table from when they're very, very tiny exposes them to the sights and sounds of mealtime and the smells of food and what goes on at a mealtime and that's just as much a part of it as actually eating food. The only reason to look for signs of readiness is if we're going to do something to the baby. Right. So I'd rather look at it as what is a safe way to offer baby their first foods. It's to have them sitting upright for which they need to be able to do that. They need to be, if they're going to pick up the food themselves, then they need to be able to reach out and grab it without falling over. So these are ways of making it safe, but they, we don't need to think of them as reasons why we might want to start. I think it's very natural when you do it, but I think if anyone's listening to this and they may not have got to that stage, it's a bit like, it's a bit like breastfeeding. Mm. You know, once you crack it, it's really instinctive. But in those early days, you become obsessed with timings and, and you know, it's about letting go really and being led by the baby. But I do think that takes confidence for a new parent. Some of the signs that are talked about as signs of readiness really concern me slightly. Mm -hmm. One of the ones that people often talk about is that the baby can actually swallow food rather than pushing it out of his mouth. But that means we're still in the mindset of him eating it rather than discovering it and exploring it. Babies, when they first start to pick up food, as you say, your baby went through a progression of sniffing it, licking it and so on. And often they'll bite a piece off 
chew it and then mm. it falls out because they're not developmentally ready yet to swallow it. But why should that mean they're not allowed to experience it? The other one is the tongue thrust uh, reflex, which is talked about quite a lot. That's present in quite young babies. If you try to put anything into their mouth, they will push it out with their tongue. And it's a very important protective mechanism. But it starts to disappear as a reflex from around four months. And it's almost always gone by six months. Mm. So it's a bit irrelevant to mention it if we're not actually in the mindset of doing something to a baby who might not be quite ready. At the end of the day, if you have your baby up to the table with you, and you put food in front of him or her that is of a suitable size and shape for them to pick up. If they're ready, they'll do it. If they're not, they won't. Any foods that you should avoid? Only the foods that really are, are kind of in the list of foods you would avoid if you were going to make your own homemade pureed baby food. So we don't give honey to young babies, for example. We, we would be very careful not to add salt to a baby's food. Seasoning otherwise is fine with lots of herbs and spices. Babies like tasty foods. They don't have to be bland. We would be careful with soft cheeses. It's the same rules that would apply anyway. They, they're not any different for baby led weaning. And what's wrong with spoon feeding them? There's nothing wrong with it, but as you mentioned, it's perhaps not a particularly nice experience. When you're spoon feeding yourself, you know at what point to put the spoon in your mouth based on when you last took a breath, or when you last swallowed your saliva. You're ready for it. But it, that's guesswork from, from the parent's point of view, and the baby doesn't quite know what to expect. So it's very much a little dance that they have to learn to make it work. The other thing is that babies are very keen to please us, to do what they think we expect them to do. And as I think Professor Amy Brown has said, probably when a baby actually refuses a spoonful of food, they had in fact had enough a couple of spoonfuls ago, but they didn't quite know how to say it. And of course, when babies are spoon fed, it's very easy to set at quite a fast pace. And if the food is pureed, babies will swallow it quickly anyway, because it doesn't need chewing. So it's so easy to overfeed a baby that way, because they don't have time to register how much they're eating. When they're feeding themselves, they almost always do it much more slowly, which allows their brain time to register what's hit their stomach and so they can control their own appetite better yes and appetite control is very important because babies are born with good perfect appetite control it sort of tends to be overridden Jill one of the things I remember from my online forum was that often or sometimes <laughs> when purees were introduced or food was introduced other than milk babies would suffer from constipation did you come across that in your health visitor days yeah I saw it fairly commonly when babies reached around about eight months Things had been going well until that point and suddenly constipation seemed to be a problem. At around about the same time, they were refusing the sort of second stage dinners, actually, the foods with, with lumpy bits in. I think there's a, an idea that purees must be easy to digest just because they're already broken down and, and smooth. But that's not necessarily the case. Most of the breaking down of food in physical terms happens in the mouth anyway. By the time we swallow our food, most of us have pureed it fairly effectively already. So it enters the stomach, at least semi-pureed. What happens after that is down to the enzymes and so on. This is only really a theoretical thinking about it, but there are two things really. One is that purees often don't contain much roughage, whereas actual foods do, so that will help digestion. The other thing is that purees are swallowed very quickly on the whole. They don't spend long in the mouth. And mouth time is important for stimulating the production of saliva. And saliva starts the process of digestion. So it may be that by swallowing pureed foods quite quickly, the whole digestive process isn't kick-started in quite the way that it should be. So that may be what's behind this. But certainly I found that when I suggested to parents that they let their baby feed themselves and that they provide food that the baby could actually chew and needed to chew, things seemed to sort themselves out. The constipation disappeared. So somewhere there's a connection there, but I'm not sure that we know exactly what it is. And when babies are allowed to feed themselves, is that a sign that they are developmentally and immunologically ready for food other than milk? 
It seems to be. It's it's not exactly, as far as we know, directly connected as a sign, but there's been what's been described by researchers as a convergence of maturation, which means that kind of all of a baby's systems develop in parallel and become ready at much the same time. So just prior to the change to six months being established as the recommended minimum age for solid foods, researchers were looking at, well, when does a baby's immune system develop that sort of robustness that will allow them to have other foods introduced and be less reliant on the protection of breast milk? And when does the digestive system start to be able to manage more complex foods? And both of those things were happening at around six months. And what happened for me was that I read this research, I heard about it and was very excited about it. But what nobody had addressed at that point was, yes, but how does the food get into the baby? So they were still talking about pureeing the food and, and giving it by spoon. The chewing skills were also recognised as kind of developing at that same time. And from my perspective, in my background in child development, what was key and was being overlooked was the fact that the baby could reach out, grab things and take them to his mouth. And when you put that all together, it seems like if this convergence of maturation is behind all this, then we can use the baby doing it as a clear sign that he is actually ready to do it. Well, it's a bit like the walking that you mentioned. You know, certain things need to happen. There needs to be muscle development and coordination. And it's all going on all the time. And suddenly one day they can walk. But there's a lot going on with babies. They're amazing creatures. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss do babies need to have teeth to eat 
No, absolutely not. Many babies don't get a tooth in their head until they're a year or more. And those who do, the first teeth they get are the incisors at the front of the mouth, which are useful for biting, but are not teeth for chewing. Uh, most babies don't get chewing teeth until they're over a year, but they have very hard little gums. And as long as food is relatively squishy, they can chew it perfectly well. They, they can't manage raw carrot, for example, and it, it wouldn't be appropriate to give them that except to use as a dipper, perhaps, to get some or something into their mouth but they're very able to chew cooked foods and softer foods no problem let's talk about choking because that is a big fear quite understandably i mean what's the difference between choking and gagging first of all gagging is a fairly normal response to having something unfamiliar in the mouth and in babies it's very sensitive it's thought to kind of be triggered further forward on the tongue than it is in an older child or an adult and it's that sort of retching movement if you poke your finger down your throat what happens is you you trigger a gag reflex and you can feel that your the back of your tongue rises up to block off your throat and push anything that's in there forward. So it's very much a kind of a forward movement coming from the digestive tract. Um, it can also lead to vomiting in some cases, and it's a protective reflex, but it's triggered way before the food gets anywhere near the baby's airway. There's another reflex which we often overlook in relation to eating, and that's the cough reflex. And many people will have experienced coughing, maybe just on a crumb or even on a liquid. They will often call that choking, but of course it's not choking. It's a cough, it's a reflex, the same as the gag reflex. But instead of being a reflex of the digestive tract, it's a reflex that comes from the lungs. So you get a contraction of the muscles of the lungs, which forces air out and pushes out anything that's in the way. So those two reflexes exist to protect babies and adults alike, and the gag reflex is more sensitive in a young baby. Choking is what happens when those reflexes don't work properly or some, for some reason they're bypassed. Choking is when the airway is actually blocked, either fully or partially, with something in the way. And if the baby can't get any air past it to give a good cough, then they can't clear it, and at that point they need help. But that's extremely rare. What's much more common is to see babies have a, a, a small coughing or gagging episode, sometimes both mixed together, and getting rid of whatever it is very easily themselves and carrying on eating. It's not easy for parents to watch their baby gag or cough, but those are signs that the, the baby's reflexes are intact and are helping to keep him safe. And provided he's sitting upright, then usually he or she will be able to manage whatever it is themselves. So parents need to just sit, stay calm, smile at the baby and let it happen. Mostly coughing is quite noisy. Gagging tends to be quieter but they often happen together so it's not easy to distinguish. But choking is much much quieter. It's either completely silent or maybe a slight wheezing noise. The child will usually look frightened, may start to go, uh, change colour in their face which is less easy to see if the skin is darker of course. But if the the baby is obviously struggling, then help is needed, but it's so rare and choking can happen at any age. Plus, I think we forget that choking isn't only about food. Babies and children can choke on all sorts of things. And the idea that we shouldn't give babies lumpy foods until they've learnt to cope with them doesn't really make any sense. The only way to learn to use the muscles of your mouth to keep yourself safe and to chew effectively is to practice and to practice on food in a safe environment. There has been some studies which show that actually choking episodes are less when babies have been introduced to weaning through self-feeding than they are if they've been spoon-fed early on, just because perhaps they're, they're, they're learning to use their mouth muscles in a much more effective way from the beginning. Not talking perhaps about babies, but generally people. You said that sometimes people choke when certain reflexes don't work or you know something's gone wrong I mean, why might someone choke uh, if they have a, a neurological problem which means the reflex doesn't operate or simply if they're distracted while they're eating or sitting in a bad position i mean imagine trying to eat your your main meal of the day lying on your back or even leaning back it's not something we would do 
but we know that if, if a person needs to be fed for some reason, then leaning them back is not going to be a safe thing to do. It's interesting that in the days when we were giving babies purees from three or four months, it was acceptable to have the baby in a sort of reclining chair and to feed them in a semi-reclining position. Nobody questioned that. But as soon as we've come to six months, and especially with baby led weaning, we're throwing up our hands and saying, oh goodness, they're going to choke. They must be sitting upright. That was never a rule in the past, but because we were giving foods to babies who shouldn't have been having them anyway, but because they couldn't sit up, we couldn't say, well, your baby must be sitting up. Suddenly now that's a thing. But it's also worth mentioning perhaps that some children, of course, who are developmentally atypical, they may have neurodevelopmental issues, certain inborn conditions, they may need to take a much slower pace with feeding themselves. They can still do it, it's still perfectly possible and it has many, many benefits for them in helping their general muscular development and coordination as well as their, their eating. But they may need to follow a slower path because they may have more difficulty controlling food in their mouth and in some cases of course their reflexes may be slightly impaired. What's happening in my body if I eat sitting back or lying down? Simply gravity it's much more difficult to keep the food in the front of your mouth while you chew it and stop it going mm. back into your throat into your pharynx before you're ready to swallow it. I won't exactly recommend that people try it but if you have tried it you know how difficult it is and it's simply a gravity thing. Mm. Our bodies weren't designed to eat food in that way. Young babies, when they are feeding, milk feeds, breastfeeding or bottle feeding, that's a slightly different matter. They can do that lying down because of the, the, the way that their throat is constructed and the, the narrowness, the, the, the close proximity of all the structures that provide an extra level of protection. But in general, as they begin to be able to sit up, so they should be sitting up in order to eat and drink. And now you were talking about some babies that might we might need to take more care introducing solids to them. Can you give me an example? A baby, for example, with a cleft palate or Down syndrome or who's had some sort of surgery on their, their head or neck area, perhaps a very preterm baby, they need longer to be ready to, to do these things for themselves. There are quite a number of babies that may need a slightly different approach and we have to adapt baby-led weaning for them. How would you adapt it? Well, it would be in conjunction with other people caring for that baby. I'm just finishing writing a book with a speech and language pathologist from the States, Jill Rabin, who has used an adaptive baby-led weaning approach, which she's developed over a number of years with babies such as those I mentioned, and finds a huge impact for them and, and lots of benefits. But she will use, for example, sometimes some gadgets like a feeder, which is like a kind of giant dummy with holes in it, which you would put some of the food in. Sometimes babies whose, whose muscles are weaker can learn to chew quite effectively on those things as a preliminary to actually putting food itself in their mouth. Some people think that those things are part of normal weaning anyway. They aren't, but they do have a place with babies who face additional feeding challenges. And so it's just because developmentally they may need a bit of extra time but there's nothing inherently that says they shouldn't be able to feed themselves. I mean, obviously it depends on the condition, but generally speaking, is that correct? Well, yes, and certainly that's what my colleague Jill would maintain, that, that there really isn't uh, a baby who won't be able to feed themselves to some degree. And what's sad that in the past, parents have so often been told, oh, your, way, but your baby won't be able to do this. Classic is that people, I was speaking to somebody the other day whose baby has Down syndrome. She was told, oh, she won't be able to breastfeed. Well, that's not true at all. She has been able to. She's needed a lot of support and has had a tricky start, but she's very well able to breastfeed. And the same applies to feeding themselves with solid food. We should always start from the position of what a baby can do, not what they can't. When did you get interested in baby led weaning and why? Well, I didn't realise it at the time, but I was interested way back in my, from my very early health visiting days because of the things that we've discussed, parents finding that the weaning wasn't going well suddenly at around seven or eight months where everything had been fine, that suddenly their baby wouldn't eat or, or coughed and spluttered on the second stage dinners or 
that they were becoming constipated or just refusing to be fed and the parents didn't know what to do. And in all those cases, it seemed that giving the baby the opportunity to feed themselves provided the answer. Parents would say, oh, he just wants to grab the food. So I kind of said, well, let him. Why not let your baby feed herself if that's what she's showing you she wants to do? But where did that come from, that statement? Was it instinct? Yeah. You hadn't done all the research you have now. That was quite a brave thing to say. Well, it probably was, yes. It was coming from the baby. I I was looking at the baby and saying, what is this baby trying to tell me? And it seemed so clear that they were saying, I want to do this. Or at the very least, I want to look at whatever it is you're putting in my mouth. You know, I just need, I just want to do it. And I knew developmentally this was a stage where they were bringing everything to their mouth anyway. And so it seemed like we were letting them do that with toys, with maybe the car keys, anything but food. It just made no Mm. sense at all. (laughs) Ironically. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, how about? Plus, What's often forgotten is that even way back then in the in the late 70s and 80s when I was um, first practicing as a health visitor, we were encouraging parents to introduce finger foods at around about six months. Of course, it was alongside purees because they were already having those in most cases. But it was recognized that, yes, the baby is beginning to be able to feed themselves. And so what started off as a sort of remedy for problems because of what I interpreted that babies wanted stayed that way for a while and it was only in the late 90s when it was becoming clear that there was going to be a move towards starting solids foods at six months rather than younger that it all came together and I was thinking well why on earth in that case would you bother with the purees and the spoon feeding. Jill what about if people are listening and thinking that sounds really interesting but I need the sort of safety network of the purees can they do both? So the conventional approach to weaning was to start with purees at around four months and then At around six months, you would introduce some finger foods as well as purees, and gradually the finger Mm -hmm. foods would take over. What makes baby-led weaning is different is that you don't have the pureed bit. Some foods can be offered as purees for babies to dip into and and spoon feed themselves, Mm -hmm. but essentially you don't go pureeing all their food. So if you take a snapshot of a baby at six months who's doing baby-led weaning, they are feeding all their foods themselves and most of them will not be pureed. If you take a snapshot of someone who's done conventional weaning, starting at four months, at six months, they are giving purees and some finger foods are being introduced. But if you start, uh, now we are supposed to not introduce any foods and before six months, if you start at six months with the conventional approach, then presumably you're going to do some purees and some finger foods. Nobody's really explained what that would look like, but logically, that's what it would look like. It would be a mixture. So that is conventional weaning if you start at six months. It's that combination of self-feeding and spoon-feeding, but it's not baby-led weaning. If it works for a family, I understand what you're saying about the autonomy and the respect for the baby. I'm totally in agreement with that. Does it matter otherwise? It doesn't matter uh, hugely, no. It's it's just what might be preferable from the baby's point of view and maybe in terms of some health issues, if we know that digestion is better, for example, there is evidence that baby-led weaning means a reduced likelihood of picky eating and babies being open to more dietary choices later. I mean, Lots of babies in the toddler years will start to be a little bit fussy about what they will and won't eat, but they're already used to feeding themselves and and being introduced to lots of different foods, then they will tend to make better choices and, and be less fussy. There's also, I guess, the fact that when we offer foods as purees, babies can't always predict what the food's going to taste like or feel like. If you have orange mush one day that tastes of carrot and the next day it tastes of mango and the next day it tastes of peach, how do you know how to anticipate what that the next day's bowl of mush is going to taste like? And we want babies to trust food. We want them to make links between what food looks like and what it's going to taste like and how it's going to behave in their mouth. And they don't get that from pureed feeding. So I think rather than one being better than the other, I think we just need to recognise there are some disadvantages to the baby from spoon feeding. 
and more, most of the advantages are actually for the parent rather than the baby. Yes, I agree about that. I mean, babies, young children, they also tend to do this thing of they like their food quite separate. I've always thought that's a sort of clever thing because if it's all mushed together, you can't see if something is something you don't like or something that might be potentially dangerous. Was there anything in your research about that? Not specifically, but I think you're absolutely right that, first of all, when lots of flavours are combined together, it changes all of them. You just get a kind of a flavour which is a, a mixture of all of them, which doesn't taste like the individual ones. But yeah, babies want to be able to experience flavours differently. Most of us do when, when we're eating a main meal. We'll tend to want to pick out things that we want a mouthful of that and then a mouthful of something else. Also, it's important if a baby sh dislikes a particular taste that's in combination with something else, then perhaps they will refuse the whole lot instead of being able to just refuse that particular food that they don't like. And neither they nor their parents will be able to identify that food easily if it's always presented in a mixture with something else. So they might refuse the whole of a chicken casserole if it's all been mushed up together instead of being able to say, well, actually, I don't like parsnip, you know. And of course, as well, if they happen to be allergic to a particular food, that's easier to define if, if the foods are offered separately. But what we, we don't need to go quite as far as making sure foods don't touch each other. That's something that some children have an issue with. And I think we can go too far that way. I'm not a great fan of plates with divisions in them so that one food's in one bit and one's in another. I love those, Joe. They remind me of being on a plane. Some of my autistic friends love those, the separation, and in fact it's transformed mealtimes for them or their children. But yes, I, I know what you mean, but I think separate foods, as in not all mushed together, that's what I meant. I think children seem to instinctively like that. In your research, did anything show that children avoided foods that they might be allergic to? Not in my research, but anecdotally I've had parents say that a number of times, that it turns out later they were allergic to something that they tended to avoid and of course again with spoon feeding where conventionally the parent decides what the child's going to eat the child has very little way of avoiding those foods whereas it can be easier if they're offered them separately we've talked a lot about spoon feeding jill and i think it's important to make the distinction that we talk about a parent or an adult feeding a child but Children, babies are allowed to have a spoon and feed themselves, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. And a lot of babies, especially those actually with developmental delay, can feed themselves with a preloaded spoon way before they could manage the spoon themselves. So it's offered to them with the food already on it. They can use a spoon as a dipper into soft foods. Many babies can manage spoons really quite young, some of them from six, seven months onwards. So there's no reason why they can't have spoons, use them. On the other hand, it is a bit of a myth that a spoon would be the first implement you'd give to a baby. Most of us only use a spoon when we've got soft or sloppy food. If, you're ha if you have food in pieces, then the first piece of cutlery that makes most sense is a fork. Mm. And again, babies can manage a preloaded fork very easily from quite young. And some are already able to stab for themselves at sort of nine, ten months and spear a piece of food and get it to their mouth themselves. So a spoon and fork can be introduced really whenever the baby shows an interest. Yes, and I remember lots of pictures and videos of children using spoons as like drum kits into the food and the food just sort of splatters. They, they like playing at, at food time as well because it's fun for them, isn't it? Or it should be. It is. And we know there is research which shows that allowing children to play with their food in fact means they end up eating more. Yeah, eating should be fun and the textures and things lend themselves to that. Plus, we have a, a huge range nowadays of so-called educational toys and things which go scrunch and so on. Many different textures for quite young babies to experience. But I don't know of any toy that when you squeeze it has juice that comes out. I mean, mm. that's amazing. We're denying babies and toddlers so many sensory experiences if we don't let them handle food. It's also amusing to me how many nurseries do messy playtime with food mm. <laughs> and yet perhaps spoon feed the babies at their meals. It's We've got it all around the wrong way. 
It's so true. It's so true. But it's like when we did the sleep podcast with Professor James McKenna and he was saying that a baby monitor should really be turned the other way around. Babies need noise mm. when they're asleep. And I, I just sometimes you just need to look at everyday situation in a different way. Anything else in your research that came up that was a real surprise to you? The main piece of research I did just looked at videoing babies, feeding themselves and being fed by spoon. And I think what struck me, it wasn't exactly a surprise, but the degree of difference was a surprise, was how engaged with the food the babies were when they were feeding themselves. Um, it was all about the food. They weren't busy making eye contact with the adult. Occasionally, yes, like you, you, you might have a conversation with someone at the table, but they were focused on the food and they were really engaged with it and interested in it and exploring it from all angles. Whereas when they were being spoon-fed, the food was, was not the thing. They might be putting out their hand perhaps to control what the adult was doing in order maybe to have a better look at the food or whatever. But their, the main body language that came from them was avoidant behaviour, trying to get away from what was going on or at least slow things down and control the situation. And they were spending more time looking at the parent than they were looking at the food. So it it really brought it home to me what a completely different experience it was for the baby. God, that's so interesting. I mean, the more I think about it, and like I said, I'm so glad I did that experiment. I can't remember why. I found it really horrible being fed by a spoon, actually. I think it's a really useful exercise, actually, if you've got a baby to have someone spoon feed you and see how how you find it, because it's, it's, it's not great, really. I think I would like parents to know that this is really possible and that they can trust their baby and the more they look at their baby watch what he or she can do that will give them confidence many people are so surprised by how competent babies are there are lots and lots of books and videos and facebook groups and all sorts of things out there nowadays about baby led weaning i would encourage people to read the book that Tracy Merkitt and I first wrote, which is Baby Led Weaning, Helping Your Baby to Love Good Food, which we revised in 2019. If they want to understand the essence of baby led weaning and what it actually is, because there's been a process by which it gets slightly distorted over time as it grows. I'm delighted that it has a life of its own and it's out there on the internet being talked about among parents but if you hear it from a parent who's done something that isn't quite baby led weaning and then you change it slightly yourself to fit your baby absolutely fine but then your friend hears sees that and hears you talk about it and thinks okay that's baby led weaning we get further and further away from what it actually is. What revisions did you make in the later edition? We recognised that baby led weaning had basically spread massively across the world in the meantime and parents had come up with their own ideas and solutions their own questions some of the kind of medical type advice had changed for example on introducing foods earlier to prevent allergies rather than waiting so there were some technical changes but mainly it was to incorporate the experiences of parents which had contributed to the body of knowledge about what baby led weaning how it works in practice because we were not the only authority on it. Parents are the authority on it as well as their babies and we had had so much feedback over the years that we wanted to incorporate those ideas that had not stemmed from us. And you said that there's been some distortions introduced. What are the main ones? There would be, on the one hand, you've got a sort of extreme version of baby led weaning which says you must never offer purees or a spoon, whereas as we've discussed, it's fine as long as the baby is in control to offer both those things. The other end of it is this idea of doing a combination. Sometimes spoon feed your baby is, is still counts as baby led weaning, if you like. I just want to reiterate, it's absolutely fine for people, parents, to do what works for them and their baby, but what we call it matters. So if you want to be sure you're starting from the original position of what baby led weaning actually means, it's best to come back to the original source. Thanks so much to Jill for that super informative talk. Any aspect of parenting can be hugely emotive. If you're looking at your strapping 16-year-old thinking, I didn't do baby led weaning with them, let yourself off the hook and indulge me for a moment in a story of my own. As I said in the intro, my first child was spoon-fed purees at six months. I spent ages making them. 
She wasn't really interested in them, and I remember getting really stressed about it, thinking we'd done something wrong. She's now a teenager, healthy, and eats pretty much everything. With my second, we did baby load weaning with her. There's a video of her at nine months eating a lamb shank that's almost bigger than she is. For enough money, I will release it. She's also now a teenager, very healthy, but shall we say, doesn't like as many foods as her sister. What I'm trying to say is how you feed your baby is important, but one part of the mosaic of the big picture. The divided plates I talk about in the episode are called stainless steel divided portion plates. I love them because they remind me of being a child eating airline food, but also some of my friends with neurodivergent children have found they transform meal times. You can get them by doing a Google search. Jill has written five books with Tracy Merkitt. The original is Baby Led Weaning. Just published is Jill's latest book, Your Baby Can Feed Too, co-written with speech pathologist Jill Rabin, who is also an international board certified lactation consultant. This book is specifically for children who have feeding challenges and difficulty eating. You can read more about Jill, her work and her books at rapleyweaning.com. I'll put the link in the episode description. The series is produced by Hester Kant. The music is by Toby Dunham and our artwork is by Low Cole. Follow us on Instagram at Pocket Annalisa or you can email us at conversationswithannalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, it would mean a lot if you could share it with someone you think might like it and also give us a review on iTunes. Please join us again next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.